Rainmaker FM. Hi there, and welcome back to The Writer Files. I'm your host, Kelvin Reed, here to take you on yet another tour the habits, habitats, and brains of renowned writers. And this week, the noted research scientist, top 20 podcast host, and co-author of the instant New York Times bestselling book, Soonish, 10 Emerging Technologies That'll Improve and or Ruin Everything, Dr. Kelly Wiener-Smith took a time out from her book tour to talk with me about the importance of good writing in the sciences, what it's like to write a book with your husband, and finding time to be a writer and a mom. Kelly's an adjunct faculty member in the Biosciences Department at Rice University, as well as the co-host of two podcasts for the Brachylope Media Network. She co-hosts the Top 20 Natural Sciences podcast, Science Sort Of, as well as the Weekly Wienersmith, a podcast she produces with her husband, celebrated cartoonist Zach Wienersmith, where the two discuss papers and interview scientists. The natural progression for the couple was their New York Times bestseller, Soonish, described as a snapshot of what's coming next, from robot swarms to nuclear fusion-powered toasters. The co-founder of Reddit said of the book, Soonish will make you laugh, and without you even realizing it, give you insight into the most ambitious technological feats of our time. And NPR said the Wienersmiths lay out clearly and with a wry sense of humor exactly what it might take to get us there. Kelly was a speaker at Smithsonian Magazine's The Future Is Here Festival in 2015, and her work has been featured in The Atlantic, National Geographic, BBC World, Science, and Nature. In this file, Kelly and I discuss what it's like to take a one-year-old on a nerdy book tour, her circuitous path to New York Times bestselling author, how the author schedules research, writing, and interviews into her busy life, the organizational tools that helped her stay on track, how her natural comedic rapport with her husband bled into her writing, why sci-fi writers should read soonish, and how to condition yourself to take criticism online. The Writer Files is brought to you by the all-new Studio Press Sites, a turnkey solution that combines the ease of an all-in-one website builder with the flexible power of WordPress. It's perfect for authors, bloggers, podcasters, and affiliate marketers, as well as those selling physical products, digital downloads, and membership programs. If you're ready to take your WordPress site to the next level, see for yourself why over 200,000 website owners trust StudioPress. Go to rainmaker.fm slash studiopress now. That's rainmaker.fm slash studiopress. And if you're a fan of the writer files, please click subscribe to automatically see new interviews as soon as they're published. All right. Welcome back to the writer files with another esteemed guest today. I've got Dr. Kelly Wiener Smith, a noted research scientist, top 20 natural science podcast host and co-author of a fantastic new instant New York Times bestselling uh, book, Soonish, 10 Emerging Technologies That'll Improve and or Ruin Everything. Kelly, thanks so much for uh, hopping on here to wrap with us about your writing process. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I, I'm really fascinated to hear kind of your path to <laughs> bestselling New York Times author, um, which, as you kind of mentioned before we started the show, was probably even a little bit surprising to you, but it is a fantastic book. Um, I love that the guiding principle of this book 
can be kind of boiled down to if you were sitting at a bar and someone asked you, hey, what's the deal on, say, nuclear fusion power, what would be the best possible answer? And you kind of break it down in this book uh, and 10, 10 pretty interesting subjects, uh, what the tech is, where it's at right now, um, kind of the challenges to its uh, realization and then uh, why it might ruin or make everything awesome. So you are on book tour, I understand. That's true, yep. Hitting the road, meeting folks. Are you having a pretty interesting uh, reception when you get out there and, and uh, meet the, uh, the public at large? Yeah, it's been a blast so far. So actually, we have a lot of nerds who have liked the book, and I am a nerd, and so I use nerd in the most loving way possible. <laughs> uh, and so it's been great because as people come across to get their book signed, you know, I ask them what they do, and I've been, you know, we've been meeting all kinds of fascinating people as they come across the table, and we've been getting lots of great questions at our signing events, and we've just been having a ton of fun so far. But we're traveling with our one-year-old, wow. and that has made things tough because his time zones have not been keeping up with the time zones we've been. Going going to so we've been keeping weird hours yeah yeah i'm sure well uh it seems like you are a rather busy uh person in real life outside of kind of the the um new york times bestselling author (laughs) sphere (laughs) as well um but yeah maybe for listeners and just to just to clarify uh your husband is also the co-author of this fantastic book zach uh wiener smith who's a uh um, very popular uh, web comic um, author and co-author of this great book, and and as you note in some of your other interviews, he you know um, helped you research and compile all this information to this great book, but also did like jokes and and comics inside of the the book that makes it makes it even more interesting. So yes, yeah. So getting back to um, kind of how this book came to be and and your background a little bit um the circuitous route to best-selling author maybe you could just kind of catch us up on what your your background is uh i know you're currently at rice university in the biosciences department and uh you do uh, another fantastic podcast i believe it's uh science sort of uh which is which is that top 20 um natural science podcast that we were talking about before so how do you juggle all these things and how have you come from a, a research scientist background to best-selling author? Sure. So uh, I'll try to keep it brief. So uh, I got my bachelor's and my master's degree uh, in, in biology with an emphasis in ecology at Bowling Green State University. And I got into it because I was interested in experiments and mathematics. And I hadn't really recognized how important writing was going to be for that process until I started my master's degree and was like, oh boy, I have to write grants and scientific papers. And if you're not good at writing those things, you don't have a career in science. And so I sort of was surprised that I was going to also have to wear the writer's hats, but I got excited about it pretty quickly. And while I was working on my PhD at the University of California, Davis, I started dating uh, my now husband, Zach, And he encouraged me to start writing a blog so that I could get good at writing for an audience of people who weren't necessarily scientists. And I I kind of enjoyed that, but I mostly enjoyed talking about science uh, in a way that hopefully people who don't study science could understand. And so I ended up getting into podcasting more. uh, And that's when I started doing science sort of. And my husband and I used to do a podcast called The Weekly Wienersmith. Uh, But we had two kids after getting, yeah, we had two kids somewhat recently, and people don't want to hear us opining about science with screaming children in the background. So Why we not? Update, yeah, right? 
there's, I'm sure there's an audience for that, but uh, not a big one. So we we pretty much stopped updating. We update occasionally after the kids go to bed, but it's pretty irregular. Um, and then, you know, we, we discovered we really liked working together. And Zach was approached uh, by Seth Fishman, who's our agent, about whether or not he was interested in writing a book. And he said that he'd be interested, but he'd really like to work on a project with me. And so we started thinking about ideas together. Uh, and together we pitched the idea for Soonish and Penguin picked it up. And that's how I, I feel like that's the moment I became a writer. And that's my story, I guess. Wow. Wow. That's really cool. So you've, so you've done a ton of writing, in other words, but nothing um, kind of to this degree. And But it is very approachable, uh, Soonish. You know, it's it's been uh, essentially described as a smart and funny book and uh, a snapshot of what's coming next. But you you, you do uh, make it very relatable, especially for non-scientists like myself. Um, it's been called a heady, scientific, um, accessible read. The Wienersmith's layout clearly with a wry sense of humor, exactly what it might take to get us there. I thought that was a cool quote from NPR. The, yeah. the co-founder of Reddit said, Soonish will make you laugh uh, out loud without even realizing it, give you insight into the most ambitious technological feats of our time. So it's getting a lot of great press. Congratulations on, on all the success that you've been having. Thanks. Yeah. So I'm really curious to know how, um, kind of you put all these pieces together. I know you've talked about it a little bit on your, your podcast, but it sounds like just a ton of research went into it. And then you had to put it all together in this very relatable way that obviously readers, could find accessible and maybe start to talk about, you know, I, you're, you're doing what, like a postdoc um, at the same time as you're, you're, I think, pregnant and working on the book. And, and how did you kind of get organized enough to, I don't know, I, are you scheduling out parts of your day to just work on this book? Or um, did you have a, a kind of a method to your madness to getting it all down? Yeah, so it was it was definitely an insane couple years. So I had a postdoc called the Huxley Fellowship at Rice University, and that fellowship was supposed to be a trial run at being an assistant professor. So I was teaching and going to some committee meetings and blah, blah, blah. So that, that was a full-time job. And my husband had a full-time job as a cartoonist. And we had uh, one child at home who we were taking care of by splitting uh, between the two of us watching her. And I was pregnant for the last year of writing the book. Wow. And so it was nuts. And so we did, uh, when we started writing the book, we tried to schedule out, you know, this is the month where we do the preliminary research for this particular chapter. And this is the month where we send that chapter off to experts so that they can tell us if we got things wrong or not. And this is the month that we draw out all the comics for the book and we go over the comic scripts together and blah, blah, blah. So we did try to schedule month by month what we were gonna get done. And we tried to figure out which one of us was going to have free time during you know which months, because I, I was very busy during the months that I was teaching, but Zach had a little bit less work to do at that time. So at that time, the book was mainly being driven by Zach. And then over the summers, I was the one who was taking the wheel on a lot more of the chapters. Uh, so we, we tried to divide and conquer that way. And fortunately, we're both interested in different parts of the process. So dividing was pretty easy. So I did all the interviews because I was really excited about getting to talk to all of these people on Skype and get to meet them in real life. Uh, and Zach, of course, is the funny guy in our relationship. So he was drawing all of the comics and punching up the jokes. And we were both going into the primary literature to read, you know, articles written by the scientists who are doing this work 
to write our first drafts. And one of the nice things about working together on a project like this is that one of us could start writing a chapter before the other one started doing the primary literature research. And then you could send it to the other person who didn't have the background information and was someone who was not familiar with the technology much and have them read it to see, did we actually explain everything clearly for someone who's not familiar with the technology? And so having someone who is closer to a blank slate read the first draft hopefully helped us hone each chapter so that it would be more accessible to people who weren't familiar with the technology to begin with. Yeah, I'm interested to know just kind of like how your academic and science background may have helped in that process. I mean, did you have some just kind of uh, organizational hacks that helped you to keep everything together in one place so that you could both access it you know like how how were you staying organized <laughs> through all of this crazy um research so my career as a scientist has has had me running lots of projects at the same time so i've gotten pretty good at trying to schedule out like okay if all of these projects are going to get done in the next month these are the days that i have to do this and every day i have to make a tiny bit of progress on this project uh, and being able to schedule things out really helped. And then additionally, writing a book about science and technology required us to check a lot of references. And so as a scientist, I'm used to working with reference software and trying to you know, organize all of that information. Yeah. And so my personal favorite program is uh, Zotero, hmm. which like you can go into Google Scholar, find a scientific paper. And if you've downloaded Zotero and Zotero is talking to Chrome, which is uh, the browser that I use, uh, you, there's a little button in the corner that you can push and it downloads everything on the page for that paper into Zotero so you don't have to write anything on your own. And wow. it just makes beautiful bibliographies that are easy to share with other people. So I was able to share it with my editor and with the people who are helping to format the bibliography. Uh, so that program is like my favorite. And so I would suggest that to anyone. But those are the two things that were helpful with just knowing how to check the scientific literature. I guess it's three things. Knowing how to run multiple projects concurrently helped me work on multiple chapters concurrently. Uh, knowing how to search the primary literature, because that's what I do for work, uh, that came in handy. And then also knowing how to use reference software like Zotero was really helpful because we have a, a pretty thick bibliography. So tracking mm -hmm. them is quite useful. Yeah, yeah. Wish they'd had that when I was in college. Um, oh, it's so nice. <laughs> so um, that's cool. That's I mean, it's stuff you probably wouldn't know about it unless you were working in maybe some of those fields um, where the, that are so research intensive. I mean, um, it looks like you've you've published quite a bit, and and that's just. Uh, part of your life already so then punching it up um making it not only accessible from a reader's standpoint you know just from like kind of like a layman's standpoint um and adding the jokes was that primarily zach's uh function or were you both i mean you both do have a natural rapport so like if you listen to your podcast um the two of you seem to be to have a natural kind of comedic rapport almost and he's a, obviously a comic so comic writer excuse me um comic comic artist i should say uh which does require a sense of humor so yeah so we do we play off each other pretty well and so some of the i wrote some of the jokes he wrote a lot of he wrote a lot more of the jokes for sure uh, but what we usually do is he'll go through and he'll write a joke or he'll put a script for a comic in a place where he thinks it belongs and then i'll tell him if i like it or don't like it or i'll give notes or sometimes I'll have like the nub of an idea, be like, oh, there's something here. 
see if you can work on it. And I'll just sort of make a note that I think that there's something that could be worked with in a particular place. Mm. Uh, but he, he does do the bulk of the jokes, but I think most of our playing off of one another comes across in the podcast or when we give, you know, when we're on tour together, but the bulk of the jokes are Zach written uh, and Kelly approved. <laughs> That's cool. That's cool. Um, well, it does seem to be, um, a very nice uh, hybrid writing style um, that works. And uh, yeah, so I guess we'll be talking a little bit about um, workflow. Are you a Mac or a PC user primarily? I'm a Mac user for sure. And um, then when you when you were actually getting getting the manuscript together using uh, Microsoft Word, were you using Google Docs kind of to do the, the um, manuscript? Well, so we're a house divided. I'm a Mac user and Zach is a PC user. And ah. he also is not a Word or a Microsoft Office user. He does everything that he needs to do in uh, Google Docs. And so he, I was going to try to push for Microsoft Word anyway, because that's what I'm used to. And that's what I collaborate with most of my scientist collaborators. Yeah. But he didn't have it. So we were pushed onto Google Docs. And that worked pretty well, actually. So hmm. pretty much all of the stuff we did was on Google Docs. We would write a draft. We'd share it with our editor. She'd go through and make comments. And then we'd go back and work on the draft. And then when it came time to really submit it, that all had to get transferred into Word, which was kind of a pain because it required a lot of reformatting. Not everything you know, copied over exactly the way I wanted it to. But we did most of the work on, on Google Docs. Interesting, interesting. I understand it must be hard writing something like this because technology is changing so quickly now did you have to make some adjustments to the manuscript mid uh writing because of things that were happening in real life oh we definitely did so there were there were two main areas that we had to do a lot of revisions towards the end so one of them was uh, so we have a chapter on different methods for getting to space more cheaply. Yeah. And so we had to make a bunch of revisions as SpaceX kept being amazing and landing <laughs> boosters. Right. Uh, but those were pretty easy revisions. And at some point we stopped putting a number with it. We were just like, they've done this a bunch of times now <laughs> because we knew that whatever number we put in there would be totally out of date by the time the book actually <laughs> printed a year later. Uh, and then the other chapter that this came up in was our augmented reality chapter. So augmented reality really quick is just when you have bits of, you know, not real things overlaying on your real, your real life. So maybe you like put on a pair of glasses and you're at the mall. So you see the mall, but there's a Tyrannosaurus Rex walking across the mall. And the augmented part is that Tyrannosaurus Rex walking across the mall. Right. Whereas virtual reality is like when you put on that Oculus Rift headset and everything is, is not real. Uh, so for augmented reality, we talked about potential risks of this technology could be that you know, there could be an augmented reality channel where someone goes and does something horrible, like on your door. So maybe you own a business and someone paints a swastika on your door and that, and that doesn't exist in real life. So if someone looks at your door without, you know, got goggles on or without looking through their phone with an augmented reality app, you don't see it. Right. But in that channel, it exists. Yeah, and and yeah. people are interacting with your door as though there is a swastika on it. So what right do you have to ask people to remove something that's happening in the augmented world uh, when you're existing in the real world. And so that was sort of our hypothetical example, which we thought was interesting, but it's more interesting when you have a little bit of meat that you can add to a concern like that. And while we were writing the book, 
Pokemon Go came out. Mm-hmm. And that is, so one, that made explaining augmented reality easier because a lot of people have heard of this game where, you know, you bring your phone around and you look in it. And when you're looking through the phone, you see little Pokemons yeah. running around. And I should be clear, I haven't played the game, but I've you know, <laughs> watched enough videos to, to kind of know what happens. Sure. Uh, and so, so actually, as an interesting aside, the people who study AR argue that Pokemon Go doesn't actually count as augmented reality because the Pokemons are not what they call in registration. So good augmented reality would have the Pokemon know that there's a bench, it would jump up, it would stand on top of the bench, it would know the direction the sun was coming from and would cast a shadow appropriately. Uh, and it would just incorporate a lot of information about the environment. But what happens in the, in the game is that Pokemon sort of float there and they don't interact uh, in a meaningful way with the rest <laughs> of the environment. Right. But anyway, that's that's just scientists being picky. Uh, but so, so what actually happened when people started playing Pokemon Go was that things called Pokestops started showing up in the Holocaust Museum, the Hiroshima Bomb Memorial, and Auschwitz. Oh and so you had all of these places that are meant to be very solemn, serious places where people were running in to collect like Pokemon Go points or something and were sort of you know, disrupting the experience that other people were having. And so it's not ideal when Squirtle is violating the sanctity of the dead. And so we, you know, used as our example, like, hey, here's a case where you've got the augmented world interacting with the real world in a way that people are not appreciating. And in that case, the answer was just write to Nintendo and ask them to please fix this problem. Uh, but anyway, so that, that's a chapter that we had to change as that game came out. And we thought it was it actually made the chapter more interesting to have a real example of, of how augmented reality was interacting with the real world in ways that sort of needed to be dealt with. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it might be a good place to add that, that actually you put an example, I believe, uh, on your website for Sooners. There's an app that you can download to see an example of yeah. augmented reality. So, And I, I believe that, that the app is on SMBC dash comics.com slash soonish and you can find you can order the book there um learn more about the authors um and uh, of course space elevators and origami and there's that augmented reality app that's pretty fun to check out if you wanted to just do it do one for free to see an example of it it's pretty awesome pretty awesome gang um so <laughs> how do the wiener smiths unplug at the end of a long day of writing and all the other stuff that you two do? Uh, so the last two and a half years, the answer has just been fall asleep because we're so tired. <laughs> right. uh, uh, but but when we're a little bit less busy and a little bit less crazy, we really like to go on walks at the end of the day. And usually that involves, you know, pushing the kids in the strollers while they fall asleep. And we just talk about whatever it was that we learned that day. So just kind of going on a walk and chatting is how we like to to unwind. And then if Zach is busy with something for that night, I like to watch Law and Order. That's <laughs> that's how I unwind is, is watching Law and Order. That's pretty funny. Well, uh, let's talk a little bit about creativity for a minute. I feel like um, so much of uh, what you two do involves a certain amount of creativity, obviously, but kind of different, kind of almost like from different parts of the brain but do you think you could define creativity kind of in your own your own words your own estimation sure so so i like a definition of creativity that includes what scientists do because i I do think it takes some creativity to design an experiment and figure out the right way to analyze it so I, i guess i would say creativity is something like 
the ability to make or understand something that didn't exist before or wasn't known before. Um, and so I feel like that subsumes the scientific work as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you feel like you kind of have a, uh, a most creative time or a creative muse that it kind of, you know, uh, pulls you along at times? So I definitely am most creative right when I wake up. So I, I like to jump up, eat my breakfast, and then if possible, run to a coffee shop and write until that creative juice runs out, which seems to never be more than two or three hours, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but uh, as, in terms of muses, I, I feel like when I'm having a little trouble writing, if I can read something by a great author, like if I can read you know, a book by Mary Roach or uh, my husband and I are currently into Neville Shute, mm. who writes uh, old sci-fi novels. Mm -hmm. um, and so if you, if you can write, read something that's really well-written, that can kind of inspire you to, to get moving also. So I wouldn't say that I have a particular muse, but reading something by someone who doesn't do exactly what I do, but does it well is, is good motivation. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Cause I was going to ask you about kind of sci-fi sci influences and um, it seems like some of the stuff you do with parasitology and parasite manipulation <laughs> always for some reason conjures like the movie alien or aliens to me. Um, oh, totally. I mean, that's a parasitoid for sure. I don't think they call it a parasitoid in the movie, but they ought to. Cause that's <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it's kind of sci-fi what you do. This book obviously, you know, runs up against a lot of, a lot of real things that, that one might think are sci-fi, you know, the, the, you know, uploading your brain to the cloud kind of stuff. Um, robots and 3d printed food and, and obviously the space elevator stuff. And it's all pretty fascinating, but what yeah. do you, what do you think makes, uh, what do you think makes a writer truly great? Hmm. Uh, what's, so I, I will say to sort of build on what you were, were just saying, I think the biggest compliment that we got on Twitter was somebody posted saying, Hey, sci-fi writers, if you're looking for material, you should read this book for like ideas for future stuff. Yeah. Uh, and I, I just love, in general, I love the way that science and science fiction can play off of each other and sort of bounce ideas back and forth. So we were excited about that. Uh, but what do what do I think makes for a good writer? Was that the question? Now that I've yeah my yeah tangent? sorry I I kind of went yeah I went on a tangent myself. But yeah, what what do you think? You know, when you think of some of your favorite writers, um, be they uh, you know researchers or or, or also um, you know fiction authors, what, what do you think? What do you think ties together that kind of, you know, when you know something is really well written, uh, what is that? What is that spark? Hmm. So I, I think when something is well written, you, you, it stays with you for, you know, the days after you read it. And so it could be a well written character. So that's why we really love Neville Shute. We feel like his, I feel like his characters are, you can just imagine them being a person that you know, but not just a person you know, but a person you know really well. Yeah. Uh, and like you could, yeah, you could imagine them being a family or a friend. Uh, for science writing, I guess I don't really know one thing that ties all of those, or, you know, those two different categories of writing together. But what I really like for science writing is someone who can really go deep into a topic, but takes you there in a way that doesn't feel like work. And so that, that's why I like Mary Roach's work. At, at the end, you really understand something that, that could have been complicated. You've learned a lot, but it never at any point felt like work because you were laughing and enjoying the whole ride. 
Uh, and afterwards, you just discover, you know, maybe a year or two later, you'll discover that that stuff has stayed with you because somebody will mention something and you're able to, you know, provide an anecdote from that book and it managed to stay with you for that long. Um, so, yeah, I guess I don't really know what ties those two genres together that makes good writing. In my mm. mind, it's sort of different things that work for both of those categories. Sure, sure. Going back to kind of the sci-fi angle, uh, have you read... Um... Andy Weir's The Martian. No, I I hate to say I've seen the movie, but I haven't read the book. I need to read the book. It's it's pretty interesting. He was also a guest on this show, and I'll link to that interview um, in the show notes. But um, he's a pretty super down to earth, very nice guy. Uh, but his his you know it's pretty it's pretty uh, nerdy. Uh, I guess we call it hard sci-fi. So mm-hmm. uh, it's very detailed. I'd be interested to know um, what you thought of it. But yeah, the the movies are fantastic, obviously. Um, and he is uh, publishing, um, actually, I think comes out in a couple of weeks, a thriller set on the moon, which you might be interested in. Uh, oh, yeah. Titled Artemis, I believe. But uh, complete aside on that one. That's awesome. I'll have to check. I loved that movie because it's one of the few movies where I feel like scientists are portrayed as being anything other than just like nerds who are socially awkward. (laughs) Right. Uh, Because the character was just like, he was so awesome and so good under pressure. And then they were incorporating the science of, well, where do you get the bacteria that help the soil? Or anyway, it was, it was good science and really good characters. And so I I definitely need to read the book because it was amazing. Well, I, b- I believe that uh, Andy Ware will be very interested in, in this book if he hasn't read it already. Um, he, he, as a, uh, a sci-fi writer, would, would enjoy it very much, as you noted. But anyway, um, do you have, as so many uh, great writers do, obviously, uh, academics as well, do you have like a, like a best love quote kind of floating over your desk or just kind of etched into your brain? Uh, Okay, so it's kind of, it's sort of, it's an excerpt from a speech. So it's not really just a quote. uh, But, but so the reason I like this is because I'm going to preface this quote before I I read it, uh, is because I'm kind of a wimp. And it takes me a while to, it took me a while to get used to getting criticism. When I first started posting things online, um, it was really hard to accept the criticism. For example, well, I used to do a thing called SMBC theater. So we did a a little theater, like short sketches of videos for a while. And the comments in there were just horrible and vile and made me want to stop posting for a long time. And so (laughs) this is the quote that I go to when I need to be like, hey, what matters is that you did something. And if you feel good about it, that's fine. Just worry about that. And so the, the quote, it's Theodore Roosevelt. It's his man in the arena quote. Uh, It says, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there's no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms with great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. So that quote makes me sound like a real arrogant jerk, (laughs) Uh, but, but I like it because I'm really kind of insecure about a lot of stuff. And I read it when I'm like, what matters is you're doing something you love and you're trying really hard so just keep doing it. Like, it doesn't matter. Yeah. You think you did well. So this is my, like, 
you know, instead of listening to like the theme from Rocky, uh, I listen to this when I need to pump myself up. I love it. I love it. Um, all right. Before we wrap up here, uh, with advice to your, to your fellow scribes out there, I'll give you a couple of fun ones. Um, if you could choose one author from any era for an all expense paid dinner to your favorite spot, who would you take and where would you take them? Okay, so I don't know that I have a favorite author of all time, but I thought about this, and I I think the person that I would invite would be Lilius Ryder Haggard. So she is the daughter of Henry Ryder Haggard, who wrote the adventure novels, like the Alan Quartermain adventure novels. Mm. And she also, so she tended their home while he was away, and she wrote a series of books, uh, one of them called Norfolk Life, about sort of tending the farm and and life. And she made amazing observations about things like when the birds were showing up, which as an ecologist, we call phenology, which is just the study of the timing of things Mm -hmm. uh, during the year. And, And she just had so many neat insights into life and what it was like when her country was at war. And I would just love to talk to her about what it was like being Henry Ryder Haggard's daughter and what it's like sort of running a farm by yourself because she was she was there alone every once in a while. Uh, and she just seems like a really strong, amazing woman at a time where being a person who who did writing and sort of ran things on their own was a bit rare. So I would like to talk to her. And I don't really have a favorite restaurant, but I really like pie. So I would take her to the pie chest in Charlottesville, <laughs> Virginia, because that's her new favorite place to eat. That's cool. That's cool. Do you collect any weird writers, writerly fetishes? Do you have any... Uh old books or old typewriters sitting around i don't unfortunately yeah. i wish i did but no i'm, I'm boring <laughs> in that respect <laughs> right on um all right do you have any advice to your fellow scribes before we uh mention the book one more time and how to connect with you do you have any advice uh to them to our listeners on just how to keep going how to how to keep the ink flowing and the uh the cursor moving there well so for me one of the best motivators for keeping the cursor moving Uh, is just having so much on your plate that you realize you kind of have to keep going. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to to meet your deadlines. So for me, having a schedule that I can look at and and figure out whether or not I'm on pace helps me during those moments where I want to procrastinate. And you just look at the schedule and you're like, nope, nope, there's no time for procrastination. You just you got to keep going. Um, So that's a bit of motivation. But then I think the other motivation would be to try to read broadly and outside of the area that you're writing in. Because if you read a book that's written really well, that can be an amazing motivator to to stop and really slow down and think about your next sentence and how to craft it just perfectly. Yeah. So so I think reading reading broadly and then also being a slave to the schedule that you've written are probably my, my best pieces of information to share. Very, very succinctly put. And it sounds like a recipe for success. Um, so we'll go back to soonish uh, 10 emerging technologies that'll improve and or ruin everything by uh, Zach and Kelly Wienersmith um, described. I like this one by Wired Magazine, a wild glimpse into a future that may or may not involve space elevators and brain computer in- interfaces and programmable matter. Zach and Kelly sift through mountains of literature, pick the brains of researchers at the forefront of things like bioprinting, 3D printing only, more bio, I guess is the definition of that one, and augmented reality, uh, as you mentioned before. So uh, I will, of course, point at soonish, uh, oh, smbc-comics.com 
slash soonish. Of course, you can find it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, um, and everywhere fine books are purveyed. Is that even a is that even a word? Um, <laughs> Kelly is on Twitter, of course, and uh, you might want to just Google Kelly Wienersmith, uh, but her uh, Twitter handle is at Fushmu, I believe. Uh, yeah, that was a mistake that can't be turned back <laughs> at this point, but <laughs> but I live with it. <laughs> at F-U-S-C-H-M-U. It looks like you can tweet at Kelly there. Um, where else do we want to point listeners? Uh, oh, uh, wienersmith.com is Kelly's uh, personal site. You can read about her uh, fantastic research and publications and podcasts of course i want to mention um these two great podcasts especially science sort of.com where you can find um the uh brachiolope what is brachiolope uh by the way uh it, it's an uh, imaginary sort of dinosaur character that the group came up with uh <laughs> this is before i joined the podcast i see it, it's beloved and we have artists sometimes who send us their own rendition of the brachialope and we love it when that happens <laughs> well if you want to hear kelly uh rapping um with uh fellow scientists about things like parasite manipulation that's a pretty interesting um one and it is uh also uh i, I listened to that whole um russia uh, parasite show and I'd, I'd know nothing about uh, parasitology and I was pr- actually pretty fascinated <laughs> oh that's great I'm glad you enjoyed it <laughs> yeah it's really cool um, and uh, yeah so uh, uh, if you want to hear about uh, parasites that live on fish brains and whatnot that's a place to go there is there anywhere else you want to point listeners uh, no you you hit all the major bases thank you right on um, of course Zach um has his fantastic site there uh smbc-comics.com you can find his fantastic work and uh yeah hey thanks so much for coming on to talk with us about your process and um best of luck come back and uh, wrap with us if you uh uh ever want to promote something again yeah great thank you so much for having me i had a great time thanks so much for joining me on another tour of the writer's process If you enjoy the Writer Files podcast, please subscribe to the show and leave us a rating or review to help other writers find us. For more episodes or to leave a comment or a question, you can drop by writerfiles.fm and you can always chat with me on Twitter at Kelton Reed. Cheers. Talk to you soon.